You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John, turn now to John chapter 20. And when you found your place, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word and grant to us understanding and insight. Help us to think clearly. Help us to think deeply about the things in your word that we may, uh, that we may stand in awe of its truth and its glory and the glory of Christ our King. In whose name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20. Well, this is not the message that I set out to uh, preach today. At the beginning of the week, I sat down to, intending to go through John 20 and start in verse 1 of chapter 20, obviously, as I promised a couple weeks ago, and uh, started studying through the passage and realized, okay, well, I need to, before we can really begin to study this, I need to lay this out, so I should probably include that in the introduction. And by the time I didn't get very too far, uh, too far into the text, I realized I had a whole sermon's worth of introduction. And so that is the sermon today. It's going to be a sermon of introduction. A couple weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians 15 looking at the dire consequences of denying the doctrine of bodily resurrection. And that was on Resurrection Sunday. And then we looked at the theories that have been presented throughout church history by unbelievers who try to explain away the different facts of history and details surrounding uh, what happened on that first Easter morning. And today, what we're going to do uh, is kind of give an introduction to what we're going to be covering in the next several weeks. As we work through the Gospel of John, uh, we have been in chapters 18 and 19 trying to bring in all of the details of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, and to harmonize uh, the details of those synoptic Gospels with John. And we're going to continue to do that as we work through the, the resurrection narratives. And in the weeks ahead, my goal and hope is that by the time we get through the end of our study in John, we will have gone through a systematic and comprehensive and chronological and very detailed study of all that is revealed that happened between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bodily ascension uh, into heaven. And that we're going to put it all together as a harmony. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's somewhat of a daunting thing to try and do because of the nature of the gospel records and because of the scant amount of details in some cases about each one of these incidences. So here's what we're going to do today. Today, I want to deal with how it, I want to answer these two questions. How is it that we deal with differences that we find in the gospel accounts when we're reading through the gospels and we see two people who are describing the same event, but there are differences and distinct differences and sometimes glaring differences? How do we deal with those? How do we approach those? What do we make of them? And then I want to go through an overview of all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus and sort of summarize them and put all of the events in kind of a chronological systematic order to show you that there are no contradictions. So let's begin with the differences that we find in the resurrection narratives and in the gospel accounts. The last chapters, uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21, those five chapters in the New Testament provide a wealth of material to agnostics and skeptics and atheists who want to deny the authenticity and the reliability of the New Testament. Because they look at the, contrad- the supposed contradictions and the differences between the different accounts, and they say, these are irreconcilable, they cannot be harmonized, they cannot be put together. Let me give you some examples of things that men have said about the closing chapters of the Gospels. Paul Wilhelm Schmiedel 
who was a German theologian from the 1800s and 1900s, and I'm not going to make a joke about his name, but you can. Paul Schmiedel said this, quote, The Gospels exhibit contradictions of the most glaring kind. And then he quotes another author by the name of Ramaras, and he says, Ramaras enumerated ten contradictions, but in reality their number is much greater. Henry Alford, who lived in the 1800s, he said this, Of all harmonies, those of the incidents of these chapters are to me the most unsatisfactory. They seem to me to weaken instead of strengthening the evidence. I have abandoned all idea of harmonizing throughout. End quote. Percival Gardner Smith said this, No ingenuity can make the narration of Luke consistent with that of Mark. Much less is it possible to reconcile the picture presented by the fourth evangelist, that being John, with the accounts of any of the synoptic writers. Mutually contradictory narratives cannot all be true. Nothing can be made of a jumble of contradicting statements. End quote. Now, that is true. Mutually contradicting statements cannot all be true, right? We affirm that. Water cannot be wet and dry at the same time, in the same conditions. Mutually contradicting statements cannot all be true. So, really, the question is, do the Gospels present us with mutually contradictory and contradicting statements? Emil Bruner, who was also a liberal theologian of the early 1900s, he denied the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture and some of the miraculous elements of the Christian faith. Emil Bruner said this, quote, The sources contradict one another, and only a harmonizing process, which is not too much concerned about truth, could patch up a fairly connected account of the events, in which it is only to manifest the latter and less credible witnesses appear more important than the earlier and more reliable ones. Such a dishonest way of dealing with the subject really has nothing to do with faith in the Word of God. It only serves to support the disastrous prejudice that Christian faith is only possible in connection with historical dishonesty. End quote. Now let me summarize that. What he is saying is, it is impossible to harmonize the New Testament Gospels unless you play fast and loose with the text itself and unless you are just dishonest in your approach to it. That's a statement. So he says, and this is evidence to him, that the Christian faith does not rest upon the historicity and the authenticity of the New Testament. He abandons that and says it's, that's really not what Christianity rests on, Bruner would argue. It doesn't rest on really whether Jesus really literally physically rose from the dead or not on the third day, and whether the accounts of those, that resurrection is reliable or not. Christian faith doesn't rest on that. We believe because we believe. That's sort of neo-orthodoxy. We believe because we believe it makes us feel good, because of something inside of us. But it doesn't rest on these contradictory accounts. And so he just says they're contradictory, and we, that shouldn't bother us. That's Emil Bruner's approach. Arthur Michael Ramsey said this, and this is the last guy I will quote mercifully. He was an Anglican bishop, and he was actually the Bishop of Canterbury from uh, 1961 to 1974. Canterbury is different than Cadbury. Cadbury is the people who make the little eggs. Canterbury is something different. Arthur Michael Ramsbury said this. Ramsbury? No, it's Ramsey. It is a fascinating study to attempt to harmonize what the evangelists tell. Up to a point, the attempt may be successful. But a limit to the success is always reached. That we should expect to be able to weave the stories into a chronological and geographical plan seems inconceivable. End quote. Now, what do all of these men have in common? All of them say the idea of reconciling or harmonizing the gospel accounts is impossible. It is hopelessly and helplessly impossible, and it cannot be done. Now, more conservative theologians who also believe that the gospel accounts offer different details will not go so far as to say that they are contradictory details, but they will say, we can't understand exactly what they mean by these things. We can't understand how these things are true. But we're willing to say that we are not going to understand that until we get to heaven. When you get to heaven, we will see how these two things can both be true. But right now, we see through, through a glass darkly, so we can't really flesh it out or, or understand it. 
uh, like we, they would uh, take the same approach that we take to trying to harmonize the sovereignty of God and a human free agency or the responsibility of man. They would say these two things both go together, but they seem contradictory to us, and we're just going to have to wait to heaven to figure it out. Now, get this right, get this straight, and understand this. If there are contradictions in the Gospels, then that means there are errors in the Gospels. And if there are errors in the Gospels, that means that God did not preserve them. And if God did not preserve them, that means that God did not write them. If there are contradictions in the Gospels, that undermines the inspiration, the infallibility, the inerrancy, and the preservation of Scripture. Now, I don't believe that there are contradictions in the Gospels. I believe that there are differences, and so the question is, how do we harmonize the differences? Now, I have obviously painted for you a large mountain that I am am promising to you that I'm going to attempt to climb in the next few weeks, and that is to harmonize all of these accounts. In fact, I'm going to harmonize all of these for you this morning before we leave to show that though I don't believe harmonizing the accounts in the Gospels is easy, I do believe that it is not impossible. In fact, there are more than one way to harmonize the details in the Gospel accounts. There's more than one possible explanation for how these things could have all gone together. And I'm going to present to you what I think is the simplest and most straightforward uh, way of harmonizing them that doesn't do any injustice to the text at all. Okay, So I do not believe that it is impossible. Now, if, if you want further study on this, before we get into it, if you want further study on this, let me give you a few resources that would be of help to you. And you can write these down if you want. There's an older book called Easter Enigma, uh, something about, I forget what the subtitle is, Easter Enigma by a man named John Wenham, W-E-N-H-A-M. And it's an, it's an older book, and it's, uh, I don't even know if it's in print or even available anymore, but if you have a chance to pick that up and you can, that's a very good one. A more recent one would be In Defense of Easter by Tim Chaffee, not Tim, Tim Challies, don't get him uh, confused with Tim Challies, Tim Chaffee, C-H-A-F-F-E-Y. Uh, he is on staff with Answers in Genesis, and their website provides some helpful articles, too. If you go to Answers in Genesis and you Google resurrection accounts or resurrection harmony or something like that, you'll come up with a list of very good articles uh, that are, would be very helpful. And then a third one I would recommend is one that I just got a couple of weeks ago, and it is called One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. It is MacArthur's Harmony of the Gospels. And so what he does is he overlays all four Gospels together so that you, as you read through the book, you are reading only the words of the gospel accounts and all the words of the gospel accounts as they're put phrase by phrase and he marks which ones come from John and which ones come from Luke. So that as you read through it, you read through all of the gospels, but it's in a very harmonized and flowing way. And then it is loaded with all kinds of notes and, and good stuff for the scholar. So those are the resources that I would recommend for this. Now, what type of uh, differences are there that these men thought were irreconcilable and impossible? Let me give you a few examples. When it comes to the question of who came to the tomb on the first resurrection Easter morning. Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and the other Matthew. That's what we read at the beginning of our service. Mark says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Luke says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and two other women. John says Mary Magdalene. That sounds hopeless, doesn't it? When it comes to the question of when the women came to the tomb, Matthew said when it began to dawn. Mark says it was very early in the morning. Luke says very early in the morning. John says it was still dark. So John says it was still dark. Matthew says it had begun to dawn. Now, if it had begun to dawn, it's not still dark, is it? And if it's still dark, that means it hasn't begun to dawn. When it comes to the question of when the stone was moved, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to place the rolling away of the stone prior to the arrival of the women. Matthew seems to suggest that the rolling away of the stone happened when the women arrived at the tomb. How many angels were there? Matthew, Mark, both mention one angel. Luke says there were two angels. And, and that's not the only difficulty with the angel. Matthew says the angel sat on top of the stone once he rolled the stone away. And Luke says the angel was inside the tomb. 
This almost sounds hopelessly, helplessly contradictory already, doesn't it? All these details. So let me give you three principles that we use when we try and harmonize gospel narratives. Three principles to keep in mind. We covered a little bit of this in adult Sunday school class a couple of months ago. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you were in the adult Sunday school class when we covered this a couple of months ago and you're thinking to yourself, we already reviewed this, we already went through this, this is just old hat, then you shouldn't have come to the adult Sunday school class a couple of months ago. That's a you problem. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is really interesting, I wish I could hear more like stuff like this on a Sunday morning, that's why you need to come to the adult Sunday school class because we cover stuff like this in adult Sunday school. So once again, that's a you problem, not my, not my fault. Here are the, here are the three principles that we keep in mind. And I'm going to take probably six principles and try and condense them into very three easy to, easy to remember principles. Number one, the gospels are independent and not identical accounts. The gospels are independent and not identical accounts. The four gospel writers did not sit down together and say, okay, now listen, when, when, you, when you talked about Jesus healing the blind man, what was it that you said? Because I need to make sure that I got, I got mine straight as well. They didn't collude together. They didn't get together and intend to create four photocopied, exactly worded, identical accounts of one another. That was not the goal. The goal was to produce four independent accounts of what happened in the life of Jesus. So they're independent and not identical, and they're not intended to be identical. And when you have independent accounts, you you expect to have differences between the accounts. We ought to expect that if we have four independent accounts, that we are going to have differences in the accounts. Right? This is what we'd expect. We'd expect that today. If there is a, a vehicle accident and you get a bunch of different eyewitnesses to the vehicle accident, you interview them, you're going to get four different and separate stories depending on where the witnesses were standing. So let's say that there's, a, 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 there's an accident in, in downtown where a car is going through an intersection and another one runs the red light going at a high speed and smashes into the car, into the intersection, pushes it off to the side, and then you go to interview the people who are there and watch all of this unfold. And so the first person you talk to is a man who is what we'll call the cafe witness or the coffee shop witness. He's standing in the coffee shop at the counter on the corner of the intersection ordering his coffee when he hears the screeching of tires, the crashing of metal, the honking of horns, the yelling of people, the breaking of glass. He hears all of that. And then he turns around to see what is the accident that had unfolded while he wasn't watching. But he heard all of this. And so you ask him how many horns were there, and he says, I, I remember three separate and distinct horns. And did you hear the breaking of glass? Yeah, I heard the breaking of glass. Did you see any of it? Who was at fault? No, he didn't see any of that. But all of the sounds he remembers because everything about that incident is recorded audibly in his mind because of the sounds. Then you talk to what we'll call the crosswalk witness. This is the guy who was stepping out into the intersection when the truck barreling down on him, coming crashing through the red light, honked his horn. And this guy looked up to see from the crosswalk, he looked up to see the man in the truck and this car, the truck creaning down on him. He jumped out of the way just in time. And you ask him, explain to me what you saw. Well, describe to me the vehicle. Well, it was a red truck. You remember it was a red truck? Yeah, I remember. All I saw was red. What type of a truck was it? It was a Dodge. How do you know that? Because the emblem was this big in my mind as I glanced and saw that. Did you see the driver of the truck? Yes, he says, he had the steering wheel in one hand and he was honking the horn with his elbow and he was holding a cell phone in the other hand and he, I locked eyes with him and he was wearing a baseball cap. It was a Seattle Seahawks baseball cap. <laughs> You're laughing because you know that this is a believable scenario now. <clears throat> and I jumped out of the way and you ask him, how many horns did you hear? I heard one horn. And it was the guy honking with his elbow four feet from him, right? He jumped out of the way just in time to avoid that. He crashed into the other car. Did you hear the breaking of glass? Probably not, because all he heard was the pounding of his heart in his ears. He didn't hear anything other than the horn. 
and the pounding of his heart. He didn't hear the breaking of glass, probably heard indiscriminately the crashing of metal, but he's just thankful to be alive, and he's kissing terra firma and, and giving thanks to God that he didn't just get run over by a truck. So that's his eyewitness account. Now, those guys give, give different perspectives, right? And if you talk to everybody that was standing around that intersection, you'd get a bit of a different perspective. Talk to the guy that got hit, he'd probably be able to tell you some details about what happened and what he heard and what he felt. You put all of those together and you get a comprehensive account of what happened, not a contradictory account of what happened. Right? The guy that heard it probably wouldn't be able to tell you how many cars were in the accident. But the people driving would be able to tell you how many cars were involved in the accident. The guy that dove out of the way might not even be able to tell you anything about the car that was hit from his perspective, but he would be able to tell you about the car that did the hitting, right? So we have differences, and we ought to expect those differences. Here's the second principle. Because the Gospels are independent and not identical accounts, the second principle is that the Gospels are not intended to give comprehensive accounts. None of the four writers of the Gospels intended to sit down and give a comprehensive account of everything that happened in the life of Jesus. They selected certain material, they selected certain details of certain incidences, and neglected to include others or excluded others, not because they were trying to lie, not because they were trying to be incomplete, they were trying to be concise. And in trying to be concise, they were trying to present the bare facts, and sometimes the bare essential facts, the bare minimum facts, because of the limitations of time and space in writing, they didn't intend to give a comprehensive account. They're trying to make a point. They're trying to drive home a theology. They're trying to illustrate or describe something for the sake of causing us to believe and giving us the information that is necessary. But it would have been impossible to give a comprehensive account of any one incident in the life of Jesus, let alone all of the incidences in the life of Jesus. So they're not intended to be comprehensive accounts. And we, ought, we do a disservice to the New Testament when we read them and expect that everything here is all that can be said about these incidences. Number three, third principle. Not every difference is a discrepancy. Not every difference is a discrepancy. <clears throat> not every difference is a contradiction. Do you understand that? There's nothing contradictory between the, the cafe witness and the crosswalk witness. There's nothing contradictory in their accounts. They're very different accounts, but they're not contradictory accounts. So some people allege that there are contradictions with the New Testament gospel. So, for instance, Luke says there were two angels. Matthew and Mark say there were one angel. Is that a contradiction? It's a difference. But is it a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. Because, listen, if there were two, there was most certainly one. Matthew and Mark focus in on the angel that spoke to the women. They mention one angel. Luke gives us two, uh, the record that there were two angels. Now, if Matthew and Mark said there was one angel and only one angel in the tomb, and Luke says there was not one angel, there were two angels at the tomb, then we would have a contradiction. But that's not what we have. We have Luke saying there were two angels appeared to the women, and we have Matthew and Mark recording the words of one of those angels, not saying that there were not others, just saying these are the words of the angel who spoke. They don't mention the others, it doesn't mean there weren't others. So that's not a contradiction. Let me give you another illustration. Let's say that I say to you, yesterday a guy from Publishers Clearinghouse showed up at my doorstep, and he handed me a check for a million dollars. Incredible, isn't it? And I'm odd, you're odd. And then later on you're talking to my wife who has a mind for details far more precise than my mind is for details. I don't notice details. I don't do details well. She does. She gets caught up in the minutiae of the details. And you ask her to relate the story. And she says to you, there was a guy that showed up in a publisher's clearinghouse van. It was a white van with big black uh, painting down the side of it. It's the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. And he showed up with a camera crew. And there was a guy holding the camera. And there was a guy holding a light. And a guy holding the microphone. And all these guys showed up. And they even brought the press with them. There was a reporter there from the Daily Bee to make sure that they got the inaccuracies recorded in the, in the newspaper the following day. And he ha was holding a big cardboard sign that looked like a check. And it said, pay to the order of Jim and Deidre Osman. It was made out for $999,000, $950.62. Now, would you listen to those two accounts? They say that is just full of contradictions. Jim said he got the check. You say you both got the check. Jim didn't mention the van. He didn't mention the camera crew. He didn't mention the inaccurate reporter from the Daily Beat. 
He didn't mention the guy holding the light. Jim said it was a check. You said it was a cardboard sign. Right? Jim said it was a million dollars. You said it's $999,950.62. We cannot possibly reconcile these accounts. So this is unbelievable. It's filled with contradictions. Or would you give the benefit of the doubt and be able to listen to both of those accounts and say those are differences, but they're not contradictions. And you would be able to harmonize all of that in your mind just fine and get a clear picture of what happened and unfolded that day. Would you not? Not every difference is a contradiction. And so when I say that there are no contradictions in the New Testament Gospels in, as it pertains to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or anything for that matter, but specifically as it pertains to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying that there are not differences. There are differences. But these differences do not constitute contradictions. Okay? So not every difference is a contradiction or discrepancy. Those are the things that guide us as we read through the Gospel accounts. So now we ask, is there a way of understanding these things, now that we understand how we approach New Testament documents and differences in the Gospels, is there a way of harmonizing or bringing all of this together in a way that doesn't require us to think that there are contradictions? And there is. There are multiple ways. And let me give, let me give to you the scenario of that morning. So now we've moved on to the second thing that I promised to do. First, to deal with how we look at these differences. And then second, to put all of this together and give you an overview of everything that happened that resurrection morning. And then all of the subsequent appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ afterwards. Now this is where you have to, you have to pay close attention. Because that morning, when the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away and the angels showed up, there was a lot of activity. That, that monumental event created a beehive of activity in Jerusalem. And there are a lot of moving pieces. We have at least five different women who are part of this scenario. We have the disciples, we have the angels, we have Jesus, and we have the Roman soldiers. So there are a lot of people moving a lot of different directions and a lot of things happening. And you, so you got to follow this. Okay? Here's what happened. The very first event, Matthew says, was an earthquake. Accompanying the earthquake was the rolling away of the stone, or the rolling away of the stone was accompanied by an earthquake, however you want to view that. But these two things happened simultaneously. And then Matthew says that an angel came down out of heaven and sat on the stone uh, next that had been rolled away from the tomb, and the soldiers became like dead men. They were terrified, probably struck uh, dumb and immovable by what they saw. And this terrified them. Maybe they even passed out. Now, at some point subsequent to that event, the soldiers collected themselves, probably the angel disappeared, the soldiers collected themselves and were able to go into Jerusalem to report to the chief priest what had happened, just as we read in Matthew chapter 28. Now, the women, the women show up at the tomb. Now, here's where it gets kind of complicated. We are presented with our first sort of conundrum. How many women were there and why were they coming to the tomb? They were coming to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, which indicates that the burial had not been done completely or perfectly on that Friday evening after they took him off the cross. It also indicates the women did not expect him to rise from the dead because they were bringing spices and, and uh, oils to anoint the body and finish the burial process and to, and to finalize it. So as the women are approaching the tomb, they're asking amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone for us from the tomb? Because we, they knew it was heavy. And they knew that they, even if there were five women there, would not be able to roll away that stone. But it also indicates to us that the women were probably unaware that there was a Roman guard stationed there because there would have been one more than one Roman soldier who would have been able to help them roll away the stone from the tomb. But the women apparently did not know about the Roman guard. If the women didn't know about it, then probably the disciples didn't know about it. That's just a detail to keep in your mind for later on. Okay, so who showed up at the tomb that morning? Well, Matthew, again, records that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the other Mary we know was the mother of James the Younger and Joses. Those were two disciples of Jesus. That other Mary was married to a man named Cleopas. And we talked about him a few weeks back uh, in John chapter 19. This is where all of that came into to play. So we have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's who Matthew mentions. Now, Mark mentions Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. And Luke mentions Mary Magdalene, jo- jo- Joanna, 
the other Mary, Mary the mother of James, or Mary the, yeah, Mary the mother of James the younger, and two other women, the other women, meaning there were at least two others. There may have been more than two others, but there were at least two others. And the two unnamed that Luke gives, one of them would have been named Salome, as Matthew, as Mark tells us. And then we have one woman who was not named. And let's just call her Mary because it seems as if everybody back then was named Mary. Okay, so we'll just call her, we'll just dub her the other Mary. No scene in the Bible is complete without three or four Marys involved with it. But John only mentions one Mary, Mary Magdalene. He doesn't mention any of the other women. Now, how do we harmonize all of that? Are we, are we justified in assuming, since Scripture doesn't say this, are we justified in assuming that all five of those women, let's just say there were five, that all five of those women left from the same location at the exact same time and took the exact same route to the tomb? Can we assume that? We can't assume that. It's very possible that some of those women, even Mary Magdalene, for instance, might have come as far away from, as from Bethany, where Lazarus lived, where many of the disciples probably were in Bethany over that weekend, over that Saturday, and early on to the Sunday morning. So let's, let's assume that Mary Magdalene left and came from Bethany, which was a two-mile walk from outside the city of Jerusalem. If, let's just speculate for a second, if the ladies had arranged to meet at some location other than the tomb and all get together and travel together, Mary Magdalene would have had to left quite some time earlier in order to get there before sunrise, right? Which means that when Mary Magdalene left, it would have been what? Dark. But when they arrived at the tomb, it would have been light. That would explain why Matthew says it was dawning when they arrived at the tomb, and John says it was late when Mary Magdalene left, or dark when Mary Magdalene left. So that's one way of harmonizing just that detail. But let's just assume that that all of the women met at the some location inside Jerusalem. And let's just assume for the sake of argument, though I wouldn't argue this, it's possible that the women traveled different routes and arrived at the tomb at slightly different times. But let's just assume that all five of them arrived at the exact same time at the tomb. So as they were approaching the tomb, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. Now, the soldiers, I would assume, I think we can assume safely, that they had left by then and gone into the city of Jerusalem John says that Mary Magdalene left the group and ran back into Jerusalem to tell Peter and John. I would assume that if she was splitting, she would have said to the other ladies, I'm going to go tell Peter and John. Let's just file that away in the back of our mind. So Mary Magdalene left and went back into the city of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, out at the tomb, the other four ladies, the other four women are there. And they're studying the scene. They see the stone has been rolled away. They see that there's broken seal there, a broken Roman seal, and they're wondering what all of this means. That Again, they did not assume that Jesus had risen from the dead. They assumed that somebody had stolen the body. And so they walked in and they examined the tomb. Sometime between the angel appearing to the, to the soldiers outside of the tomb, he sat down on the stone. Sometime between the, that happening and the women arriving, the angels moved inside the tomb. So the other four women walk inside the tomb. They examine the grave clothes. They see that there is a missing body there. All of this perplexes them. And at that time, two angels appear. According to Luke, one of them, according to Matthew and Mark, tell the women, uh, Jesus is risen. He is not here. Uh, leave here. Go tell the disciples that he is risen, just as he said, and that he will meet them in Galilee. And there, there he will appear to them. So the women hear that message. Now, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Mary Magdalene, who has left the tomb, has gone back to tell Peter and John. She told Peter and John the stone was rolled away. We don't know what happened, but it looks like something happened there. And this was disturbing. Peter and John got up and immediately ran out to the tomb. Meanwhile, the ladies who had been inside the tomb, whom the angels had spoken to, were on their way back into the city of Jerusalem. Now you say, why didn't they pass each other on the street? There were, in fact, two different locations through which you can enter the city of Jerusalem in the upper northwest corner of the city. There were two gates. Now it's possible, is it not, that knowing that Mary Magdalene had gone back to tell Peter and John, that the other ladies would have gone to tell the other disciples that, that Jesus had risen. And they might have taken a different route into the city than Peter and John were taking out of the city. 
Or even if they were both all traveling from and to the same place, it's possible that they took different routes to the city because some of them would think one route was longer and some of them would think one route was uh, shorter. Just as you probably have this thing, I have the thing with my wife that we show up at different locations, sometimes taking different routes because I believe one route is shorter. She mistakenly believes that the other route is shorter. And so we we can pass each other in the city of Sandpoint going to and from the same location because we're taking different routes. We can assume that the disciples might have done the exact same thing. So as Peter and John are on their way out to the tomb, presumably with Mary Magdalene in tow behind them, John says that he outran Peter and ran to the tomb. He stopped outside. He stooped inside and looked inside. And then Peter arrived at the tomb and rushed past John into the tomb. And then John came in and both of them noticed, again, the grave closed and the missing body. Now, they would have left that scene. And according to John 20, verse 11, Mary Magdalene was staying behind at the tomb and she was all alone. The other women are on their way into the city of Jerusalem. And that sets the stage for the first of the ten resurrection appearances. And that first appearance was to Mary Magdalene. It is recorded in John chapter 20 and Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Mark mentions it, but doesn't give any of the details. John gives us all the details of that appearance. Mark in Mark 16, verse 9 says the first time Jesus appeared, it was to Mary Magdalene. And we could be looking at that in the weeks ahead because that's in John's gospel. So that's the first of the resurrection appearances. And he speaks to Mary Magdalene. She realizes that he's been risen from the dead. Immediately after that, very close to that event, was the second appearance. And this was to the other women. I see, some people look at these two appearances and they say one says it was to Mary and the other says it's to the other women. And these have to be the same account. They don't have to be the same account, as I've just explained to you. These are two different appearances to two different women at two different set of locations. So the other women are on their way, probably not back even into the city of Jerusalem, but maybe even on the way to Bethany to tell the other disciples, whom we could presume safely were probably staying at the house of Lazarus outside of the city. And so they are on their way over there, and Jesus appeared to the other women. That second appearance is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 through 10. Now, everything that I have just unfolded to you is only one of many possible ways to harmonize all of these events. Everything that I have just unfolded to you fits all of the details of the New Testament Gospels. It accounts for everything, the different positions of the angels, the different numbers of the angels, the different women, where the women were when they saw Jesus and who was going where and what was happening all at the same time. All the contradictions that I listed earlier have just been perfectly harmonized in that scenario. I didn't leave any of them out. All of those details. That's only one possible way of harmonizing all of those events. Is it hopelessly irreconcilable? It's not hopelessly irreconcilable. Is it easy? It's not easy. But it's certainly not impossible. And you're not going to find anybody who interacts with something like that on atheist.blogspot.com. But if you have a propensity to think a little bit deeper than what you get on atheist.blogspot.com, you can work through the details of the New Testament, taking the text seriously, all of the details seriously, and it doesn't present us with irreconcilable uh, contradictions or, or differences. Now, there are eight other appearances of Jesus. And now, if, if, let me back up for just a second. If everything that I've just given you is confusing and you're saying, I don't know if I can put all that in my head all together, we're going to be going through it much slower detail by detail in the weeks that are to come as we work through John. And John just takes it from Mary Magdalene's perspective. So we'll handle that as we go through the text. And this is just kind of an overview. Now, there are other resurrection appearances, and for the rest of it, it's not that difficult to harmonize, because the most difficult part of the Gospels to harmonize is the events immediately surrounding the resurrection and what happened in that flurry of activity for, say, the first hour. That's where all of the, uh, that's where all of the difficulties and differences come in. After that, it's very easy. So here are the rest of the resurrection appearances in the order that they happen. Okay? First, well, first was Mary Magdalene. Second, the other Marys on the road probably to Bethany, maybe on the way inside or inside the city of Jerusalem. The third appearance was to Cleopas and an unnamed disciple. This is recorded in Luke chapter 24, and it's mentioned 
in Mark chapter 16. And this is what we call the appearance on the road to Emmaus. Uh, this is the two men who are walking from the city of Jerusalem out to the uh, town of Emmaus. And on the way, they come across a traveler. And Luke says that their eyes were veiled so that they could not recognize that it was Jesus to whom they were talking. Presumably for the purpose of Jesus explaining to them all that came to pass that was a result of uh, and a fulfillment of the prophets and the law. And so he taught these men as they walked together all the things concerning himself and the law and the prophets. And uh, he was teaching them. Jesus was teaching them. These things had to come to pass to fulfill this, had to come to pass to fulfill this. And he walked them through all the Old Testament. And they finally got to Emmaus. And Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks. And suddenly the light came on. Their eye, the veil from their eyes were lifted. And they realized who it was that they were talking to. The, the, they, 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 didn't, they didn't not recognize him because he was different or changed or unrecognizable. But Jesus had veiled their eyes and kept them from understanding who he was. That was a supernatural uh, gracious blinding so that Jesus could reveal to them all that the Old Testament said concerning himself. And then Jesus disappeared from their sight as soon as they recognized who he was. And they said, did our not, hearts not burn within us while we were with him? And so then they left and they went back from Emmaus to tell report this to the disciples. And they arrived back in the city of Jerusalem later that evening. So that appearance on Emmaus probably happened in the afternoon of that first Sunday. They arrived back in Jerusalem later that evening to the gathering together of the disciples. And all of the disciples remaining were there except Thomas. And Judas, obvious for obvious reasons, but we don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but he wasn't. And so Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, and that unnamed disciple may have been one of the eleven that arrived there, and they began to report what they had seen out on the road to Emmaus. And the other disciples said, yes, the Lord is really risen, and he has appeared to Cephas. That's the fourth appearance, to Cephas, or to Peter. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. We don't know where that happened, or when that happened, or how that happened, or even what was said between Jesus and Peter, but we know that the Lord had appeared to Peter at some time during that day. And then, while they are all gathered there together, and the guys from the Emmaus are talking with the, the other disciples who are talking about the resurrection appearance to Peter, while they're conversing, the Lord appeared to that group of men. And so that would have been, what, uh, 11 with Cleopas there, so there would have been 12 of them at least in that room. And the Lord appeared to them. That was the fifth resurrection appearances. Now, those five resurrection appearances all happened on the very first Sunday. Mary Magdalene, then the other women, then in the afternoon to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, then to Peter at some time that afternoon, and then to the evening to the eleven men with Cleopas was there as well. The rest of the resurrection appearances happened over the course of 40 days, and, and pinning down exactly when this happened is not really possible for us given what has been revealed to us. But we do know that eight days later, well, I guess we can pin down this one. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to the twelve again, and John records the appearance to Mary Magdalene. He records the appearance to the twelve with Thomas absent. And then eight days later, John says that Jesus appeared to the, the disciples again, this time with, with Thomas present. And that would have been the sixth of resurrection appearance. Over the course of the next few weeks, the seventh resurrection appearance was to seven disciples on the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And that is the appearance where Jesus made fish for the disciples and the appearance where he restored Peter, after Peter had fallen, he restored Peter to ministry. And that's a significant event. John spends the entire chapter 21 on that one resurrection appearance. That takes all of chapter 21. That's the seventh one. The eighth appearance was to the 500 brethren that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is probably the same appearance that is mentioned in Matthew chapter 28 that we read where Jesus gave the Great Commission. It appears to have been an appearance to a, a, a called, gathered together group of of brethren on a mountaintop, and they, the disciples went up into Galilee, gathered together to the disciples, and appeared to over 500 of them. And that's where Jesus said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and gave them the Great Commission, telling them to disciple and, and uh, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That was the eighth appearance. The ninth appearance was to James, and like the one with Peter, that is an appearance that is not recorded in the Gospels. Only Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. James was the Lord's half-brother. And as the Lord's half-brother, James never believed in Jesus up and through the crucifixion, and probably even until the resurrection. But at some point, somewhere, Jesus appeared to James, and that changed, probably had something to do with changing James's heart regarding who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do, because after the, after the gospel accounts and after the resurrection and ascension, James appears as a leader in the early church in Acts chapter 15 and as the author of the book of James toward the end of the New Testament. The tenth and final appearance of Jesus was to all of the apostles. It's recorded in Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, Acts chapter 1, and 1 Corinthians 15. And this is to all of the apostles, and this would have been his appearance to them when he ascended up into heaven. And that, that probably is mentioned more times than any of the other appearances and Luke giving us the most detail in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. So those are the ten appearances. Mary Magdalene, then the other women, Cleopas on the road to, to Emmaus, then to Peter, and then to the twelve, or the, the disciples minus Thomas, then to the disciples with Thomas, then to the seven on the Sea of Galilee, then to the five hundred, and then to James, and then to all of the disciples together at the ascension. Now were there more than ten? Or only ten? The New Testament mentions 10, but are we to assume that that is all of the appearances of Jesus risen from the dead that there were? I don't think we can make that case. I think Scripture, and this is sanctified speculation, I think Scripture leaves it open that there were other appearances of Jesus that are not mentioned in the recorded in the New Testament. Those 10 are mentioned, but I think that there may have been others. For instance, in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, and your Bible is open to John 20, so you can look at that passage yourself. John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, typically we take that to, to say Jesus did many other miracles, signs, which are not recorded in this book. And that is true. But it's always it's curious to me why John, why John says this, sandwiched in between resurrection accounts. In other words, he talks about the appearance to Mary Magdalene, then the appearance to the disciples of Thomas absent, then the appearance of, Tom, of the disciples of Thomas present, and then he says many other signs, and then another resurrection appearance. So why does John put it there and not in connection with the last miracle that Jesus recorded? It is almost as if John is saying Jesus did many other signs and there were many other appearances that have not been recorded in this book. And I think that that is safe to say. Now, John, maybe it's only ten and John is saying, hey, there's, there's six more that I forgot to mention or that I'm not mentioning. They're not recorded in this book, but they also happen. But these have been recorded so that you may believe. That might be. But at the end of John's Gospel, he says in verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Many other things that Jesus did. Could that be many other resurrection appearances? Luke in Acts chapter 1 speaks of Jesus appearing to his disciples over the course of 40 days with many convincing proofs speaking to them and teaching of them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So all of these resurrection appearances happen over the course of 40 days. John says there are things that happen that I have not written. Other things could be written which would fill the world with books. Are we to think that only Jesus only appeared 10 times and 10 times only? I don't think we can make that case. I think that we have to suspect, I have to suspect, that there were many other resurrection appearances where Jesus sat down and ate and talked with the disciples. These have been recorded so that we might believe. These are recorded so that we might believe. Now, what do we take away from this as believers? Let me suggest two things. First, we have to keep in mind that these resurrection appearances to the disciples and the followers of Jesus 
these resurrection appearances radically transformed the lives and the, the thinking and the, the vision of these men. Radically transformed them. Just take the disciples, for instance, who, who fled at the first sight of danger in the garden when they arrested Jesus. These 12 men, uh, all of those men bailed on Jesus except Peter and John, and then Peter bailed on them. Their cowardice was legendary. And yet, only a little more than 40 days later, these same men stood before all of those men who had crucified Jesus and put him to death. And those same men said to those religious leaders, you tell us whether it is right for us to obey men rather than God, but we will keep on preaching the name of Jesus and that he is risen from the dead. And they presented the gospel to those men and told them that they must repent or they would perish. And because of that preaching, they faced hostility and hatred and an angry crowd and angry religious leaders. Many of them lost their lives. Eleven out of the twelve men were martyred. All twelve of them suffered. And if you add Paul to that mix, then you have twelve out of thirteen men martyred for what? For preaching a social gospel of wealth redistribution? For telling people that they need to love their neighbors? For giving shirts off their back? No, they were martyred because they would not give up this one fundamental message. That Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and three days later he rose again. That's why those men were killed. Now men will die for what, they be, what is a lie. If they believe that lie to be true. Men will die for a lie if they believe the lie to be true. But men will not die for what they know to be a lie. If these 12 men had fabricated the message of the resurrection, they would never have given up their families, their lives, their occupations, their comforts and their conveniences, and their reputation and their status in the community. They would not have abandoned all of that for what they knew to be a falsehood. They wouldn't have done it. There's only one thing that can explain the radical transformation of these cowardly men into dynamic preaching machines who would not drop this central message of a risen Savior. And that is the resurrection itself. These men saw Jesus, they handled him, they talked with him, they, they ate with him, they visited with him, and they were absolutely convinced. And you could not shake them from that resolve, belief. And you and I can have the confidence that our faith rests on the testimony of eyewitnesses. As Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1, we, did not, we do not believe or follow cunningly devised fables. These are not myths. These are not legends. Christian faith is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. It is a faith that is firmly rooted on history and on fact. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, victorious over the grave forever, and he lives always and will die no more. That is a historical fact. Over 500 people saw him. 500 people. If you were to take each one of those 500 people and allow them to testify for 15 minutes in a court of law, that would produce over 7,500 minutes of testimony. That's 125 hours of testimony. And if you were to listen to eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for eight hours a day, it would take you 16 days to hear all 500 witnesses. You are a fool, worse than a fool, and another fool if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have not followed cleverly devised fables. We have followed the faith and the truth that Jesus Christ is risen. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, you are faithful and true and your word is true and it is clear. And as we look at the details of your word, we are struck again by the, the majesty of your word and the clarity of it. It is all there unfolded for us. You've given us eyes to see it. And we know and we have confidence that your word does not contradict itself. This is written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke as you determined that they should. And they have left us an accurate and a faithful account of all that happened regarding the resurrection of Christ, and not just the resurrection, but his entire life. And we thank you that you have brought us to faith in your Son, 
that the evidence testifies to a risen Christ, history testifies to a risen Christ, and the eyewitnesses testify to that. We are so grateful that you have not asked us to believe in myths or cleverly devised fables, but that our faith rests on fact and it rests in you, a gracious and good and kind God, who has opened our eyes to the truth so that we might behold it and believe it and love it and be saved by it. Thank you for these things and encourage our hearts in the truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For communion this morning, um, I want to remind you that our communion service, when we observe communion, we are in one sense looking back at what Christ has done for us in the offering that he has made. But in another sense, we are also looking forward and anticipating the time when we will eat and drink with him in his kingdom. That is going to be a glorious thing to sit down in a resurrected body at a table and eat and drink with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom and have the Son of God there to eat and drink a meal and enjoy fellowship with him. Uh, this, this meal that we partake of, it's called a meal in Scripture, this, this meal, symbolic as it is, looks back at what Christ has done, but it also looks forward with great anticipation to that day when we will not enjoy just this, but we will sit down at a table with all the saints of old, and we will rejoice in his presence and enjoy a meal with Christ our Lord. So as we partake of communion, we, we do so because not only has he been crucified and died for us, but he has risen again as well. This would be utterly meaningless if not for the resurrection. What's the point of remembering somebody who died? We don't do that for everybody who has died, do we? But we do it for one who has died for us and he has risen again. And that's the testimony of Scripture. That's the promise of Scripture. So let's bow our heads together as God's people. We'll partake of communion. We'll confess our sin uh, together and to God. And then we'll partake of communion together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.